Welcome to another episode of the Ingle Angle Podcast. I am Fort Worth Star-Telegram columnist Mac Ingle, and you might be able to tell I sound a little bit different. I'm sick, and now I sound a lot I sound a lot worse than I feel. I don't know what I've got, some head junk. And I, don't, I noticed that at some point in my life, I don't know when it happened, I hate being sick. That's another one of those signs that you're getting older, kind of like checking the weather every five minutes. But there was a time in my life being sick was awesome because it meant I didn't have to go to school. When I was younger, I hated school. And then when I got older, I hated school because I was really bad at school. So being sick was money in the bank. The problem was I'm the youngest of six kids. And by the time I was born, my mom knew all the tricks. So unless I was dead, I was going to school. When now that I'm older and I'm sick, you don't have time to be sick. You just have to keep going. No one tells you that as a kid. And we talk about all the things that the failures that exist or the holes that exist in education. Well, there's a couple that really jump off the page at me. One, we don't tell our students, our young people, about money, how to manage money, what money really covers and goes for, water, heat, electricity, insurance, taxes, property taxes. And nobody ever tells you that at some point in your life, you will get to the point where being sick sucks. I'm there now. I've been there for a while. Can't sleep, feel like garbage, can't breathe, don't want to eat anything. That's when you know it's really bad, is that when you don't want to eat. I live to eat. I know there are all these psychologists out there who sit there and say, uh, if, if, you're, if you're overeating, that means something eating you. That's a lie. That's not true. It's just the taste good, and I want to eat more of it. Except right now, because I can't taste anything, and I sound like crap. All right. If you've watched a few of these episodes before, you'll notice that my eyes uh, are doing something right now that they normally hadn't, that they normally don't do in, uh, that I've done in previous episodes because I'm not reading anything. I've noticed when I've watched these podcasts on YouTube, you can see my eyes are following the teleprompter. I write them out, give a little time, think, okay, this is pretty good. And then I read it as I'm looking at the camera, but you can totally tell that I'm reading it. It's like some amateur, you know, eighth grader doing a weekend newscast in the middle of Oshkosh. No disrespect to Oshkosh. Well, this time I decided, okay, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to go off the top of my head and see how it goes. Guest for today's episode is someone that if you had told me in 1992, yeah, 92, that I would know this person and have a relationship with her, I would have said, that's crazy. That's that ridiculous. But I think if you ask anybody in these jobs, the longer they do it, they do come across people from their, I don't want to say youth, but maybe their youth. And maybe you get to know them, spend some time with them. And certainly this person would qualify because at the time when I was in high school and college, this person was huge. Now, I'm not going to wait to introduce this person because if you're watching this or listening to this, you already know who the guest is. She's Lisa Guerrero. There was a time, late 80s and early 90s, Lisa Guerrero was the biggest female sports personality in media by far. 
And if you didn't know anything about Lisa Guerrero, other than her time on ABC's Monday Night Football, when she was the sideline reporter, or her time on Fox Sports Show's uh, Best Damn Sports Show, period, you wouldn't know that there was a whole life and career that predated that. She was actually an actress. She had been a model. She was an L.A. Rams cheerleader. She had been uh, on a daytime television uh, soap show back when those were a thing. Well, anyways, obviously, for people who are familiar with Lisa Guerrero, her career, uh, I would say, went away from sports after she left uh, the Fox Sports Show, Best Damn Sports Show, period. That was with John Cruck. It was with um, Tom Arnold. It was a mix of comedy and everything else, sports, entertainment. No one had really done anything like that on television at the time. Lisa was huge. Well, fast forward this to about 2005 and 2006, and I'm at the Dallas Cowboys training camp covering the Cowboys for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and it's on a Saturday afternoon. There's hardly anybody there watching practice, and there's this tall Latina woman standing there by herself, and she and I get to talk, and she's a nice person, and I'm thinking to myself, I was like, God, I, I know I know this person. Why do I know this person? I, I can't place it. We had a nice conversation, but for the life of me, I can't figure out who she is. Well, then Cowboys owner Jerry Jones comes up and says, hey, Lisa. And she says, hi, Jerry. And they give each other a hug, and then hits me. That's Lisa Guerrero. A couple years later, for whatever reason, I don't even know how, we befriended each other. And she reached out to me one time and said, listen, I want to write a book. I want to write a book about my career and my life. Would you write it for me? And at one point in 2014 or 2015, we had gone back and forth and kicked ideas around. I went and met her for lunch in Malibu. Again, if you had told 1992 version of me that I'm going to be sitting there in Malibu, chit-chatting about potentially running a book with Lisa Guerrero, I would have been like, yeah, no, that's crazy. But we had a very nice conversation, and we agreed to do it. Well, at the time, I was working on another book with, uh, with a subject who was, that was an interesting experience. And what I came to learn was, that's very challenging, writing a book with somebody. I had written books before, I've written four, and I encourage everybody, if you want to write a book, to do it. Who cares if nobody reads it? Write it. It's kind of like running a marathon. If you just finish it, that's a genuine achievement. Well, Lisa had written about three chapters of that book on herself, by herself, and I had told her repeatedly, you don't need me. You should do it yourself. And she said, I, and I really don't have time. You know, I would trust you to do it. So I had this idea, and she gives me Tom Arnold's phone number. So I call Tom Arnold. He called me back. I do an interview, and I write what's called a dummy chapter. Lisa reads it. I don't think she was crazy about it. And what I learned at that time was, if I do this, she and I are going to kill each other. Because when you do a collaborative creative effort with somebody, effort with somebody else, gears grind, people butt heads. And I thought, man, I, I don't know if this is really worth it or not. And for whatever reason, I don't even know. We just kind of, the whole thing just kind of died. But I knew then that what she had written by herself was really good because Lisa Guerrero's career is really interesting. Anybody who makes it this long in this business, like Lisa did, that's pretty impressive. ABC's Monday Night Football. She modeled for Playboy. She's been an LA Rams cheerleader. She's a sportscaster in LA. She was ahead of her time. Whatever you think about her, she was ahead of her time.
So anyways, last year sometime, she and I follow each other on social media. I see that she has written a book. I'm like, man, that's great. Good for her. Congratulations. So I reached out to her and I said, hey, I've got a podcast. Would you by any chance be interested in, in being a guest? And she came through. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the one and only Miss Lisa Guerrero. You don't look any different. I, and I can't remember the last time we talked, but you remember the last time we did talk, I told you, you should write this book. You should write it. Because you had sent me the first three chapters and I thought, I don't need to write this. And you were like, no, nah, you, you go ahead and do it. Um, I don't have time. And then we just lost track of each other. And now I see you finished it. So what prompted you to power through and finish your book? It's actually a completely different book. I so that. I started writing the book about, I would say, 15 years ago right. when I was still doing um, sports. So I, I had always kept a journal. I was uh, writing a sports column, a couple of sports columns for some local blogs and a local magazine here. And ultimately, the book I started writing is not the book I finished writing. So yeah, it didn't Warrior, look, the, it didn't look the, the same. Book, yeah, no, it's not. Because the original book was about you know, the shenanigans of being, you know, covering sports as one of very few women in the 90s here in Los Angeles, and then making the transition to regional and then national sports and Monday night football. And the book began as a series of essays about what it was like behind the scenes. But as I've matured, as my career has progressed, I've really understood how my story has resonated with young women um, my book has, I think, really affected people in a different way than I thought. And that's because I decided to write what really happened, not the fun parts or the interesting parts. I wrote about what really has happened behind the scenes of working in sports um, as a young woman um, in the NFL, as a cheerleader, and then as a cheerleader director, as a young sports reporter a sports anchor working for best damn sports show, then Monday night football, and then being fired from the best job in sports for a woman and then rebuilding my brand and becoming an investigative reporter. And what I discovered is that all of the misogyny, the challenges, the uh, sexual harassment, um, the, the toxic work environment, the criticism, everything that I endured helped make me the brave person I am today that you see chasing bad guys on Inside Edition. So when people say, oh, she's fearless and she looks like a badass, and she looks like Wonder Woman, um, <laughs> that didn't happen overnight and that didn't happen by accident. You know, that that bravery that people identify with and they like to see was completely um, grown from a place of uh, failure, humiliation, um, and now what fuels me and what makes me brave is empathy for the victims that I interview for my investigations. I stand up for myself. I stand up for others now, but I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not endured a lot of trauma years ago. You know, when you and I talked, you were pretty, you were really honest. And this was seven, eight years ago. I can't remember when we met that day, um, the year on it, but I remember thinking, you got your ass kicked pretty good. And this was before social media, which now everybody's just a target. But back then you really got smoked. And I remember thinking that that hurt 
because it was personal. And when you do put the word you on something, that makes whatever sentence very personal. And those were. And I thought that has changed her and not in a good way necessarily. Um, Did it make you bitter and resentful? Definitely not. I mean, the book is not called Victim. The book is called Warrior. And um, the reason I call it Warrior is my last name, Guerrero or Guerrero, means warrior in Spanish. And before my mom died, I was eight years old and she was 29 when she died of lymphoma. She pulled me aside. and She said, never forget that your last name, Guerrero, means warrior and you were born to fight. And then she passed away. And I didn't know at eight years old what that meant. And so for many years, for decades, really, I've been trying to live up to my last name and my heritage. And I wasn't able to because Monday Night Football and the um, the process of being in sports and, and being the target of that kind of toxic criticism really um, hurt me deeply. And what ended up happening is I didn't become bitter. I was able to refocus my career goals and really look at myself differently. Sports is awesome. I love sports. I'm a sports fan, but sports in in the world of journalism is a niche. And for 15 to 17 years, that was my entire identity was sports. And when I was fired from that world, I, I didn't have the will to live. I almost literally, I almost killed myself after being fired. And then it took a long time. It didn't happen overnight. You know, I talked to my dad, I talked to a therapist and I realized that not everybody cares about sports. (laughs) Not everybody knows who's playing in the Super Bowl. you know, but everybody cares about fairness and everybody does care about, you know, wanting to know what's going on in the world around them, whether it's in their community, their state, their country globally. And so when I redirected my efforts as a storyteller into news instead of just sports, all of a sudden this whole world opened up of possibilities for me to use what I do best, which is asking tough questions, relating to viewers. I'm a very good writer, I think. And I wasn't being utilized as a writer when I was doing sports very much, especially towards the end. And at the end of the day, I'm really good at accountability. And that led me to investigative journalism, which is all about accountability. So when people see me chasing after people and asking them tough questions, you know, that's what Mike Wallace used to do, right? That's what that those tough ambush journalism um, uh, kind of lions in the 70s and 80s were doing. And whether you agree with whether or not people should be confronted like that, that's what I do. And I wish more uh, reporters would do that. You know, when you look back on your career, when you made the transition over and the jump into sports, whether it was a sideline on ABC's Monday Night Football or whether you were on the best damn sports show, period. Did you feel like, Lisa, they valued you or that, for lack of a better word, you were just a piece of meat? I write a lot about this in the book. And um, I don't blame anybody for being marginalized. I don't blame one single person. You know, when I when I began uh, in the sports industry in the 80s, I began as an NFL cheerleader and then became a cheerleader director and choreographer and entertainment director. I think at 29 with the Falcons, I was the youngest entertainment director in the league and the only woman entertainment director the Falcons had ever had up until that point. So I was doing a lot of groundbreaking myself 
back then in the eighties. And, you know, I think the culture back then was very comfortable with women participating in the world of the NFL. If you were a cheerleader, right. Um, less so if you were a sideline reporter or a beat reporter or a columnist or a talk show host. So, um, you know, every, at every step I was just meeting, you know, uh, with a lot of animosity because people weren't used to seeing a, a woman covering sports or be a woman that looked like I did covering sports or with my background, um, or lack of, um, you know, coming up through the ranks from ESPN or from kind of the East coast media, you know, trajectory that most national um, women uh, in sports kind of, they follow that path. So, you know, I came from a very different place and people didn't like that and people didn't understand me, but guess who did like me? (laughs) The viewers, because at every single opportunity I had both, you know, locally and then nationally, the ratings went up on every single sports show I was on while I was there. Oh, Lisa, but you were, Lisa, you were a lightning rod, good or bad. Everybody knew who you were. And now, you know, sometimes it was downright cruel, but you became must watch TV there for a good while. Now, like I said, you heard, and it was, viewers were mean sometimes, but damn it, everybody knew who you were and they were going to watch you. The viewers weren't as mean as fellow media critics. Oh, you're talking about like Rudy Martsky and those guys? Rudy Martsky, Larry Stewart, um, Christine Brennan, like all all of the media, like yes. the, the so-called, um, you know, media critics, the, the people that um, decided whether or not you were worthy of covering sports. You know, these <laughs> were the guys that were really tough on me. These were the guys and women that that were saying, oh, she shouldn't be a sports reporter. She was a cheerleader. Um, you know, she used to wear sexy outfits. She used to wear, wear bathing suits. She was a swimsuit model. There's no way she should be a sports reporter. How, how dare she? Who was worse, Lisa? Reporter? Who was worse? Male, male media members towards you or female media, media members towards you? There weren't that many female media members, yeah, to be right. clear. You know, there were only a couple. Um, so, all of them were terrible and cruel and vicious and unfair for the most part. I mean, I, you know, I remember there was a, and I write about this in my book, Warrior, there was an article in the LA times by Larry Stewart, who is the sports media critic um, where he, the entire column was about a shirt that I wore without a bra underneath it. And that picture that they, that they pulled was from an old modeling picture that wasn't had nothing to do with my sports career. It was from years before. And the uh, website at Fox Sports Net, where I worked at the time, posted that picture of me, along with other pictures of me in the field. I think I was interviewing Chan Ho Park in one picture. And then all of a sudden, this glamour picture comes up from my modeling days. And Larry Stewart writes an entire article about this one picture. And he brings in Christine Brennan who says I've set back women 10 years in the industry. And, you know, the whole tone of the article is actually pretty lecherous and gross. It's slut shaming is what it was. And there wasn't a word for that back then, but that's what it was. They were, um, they were slut shaming me for having had the audacity to be a model, I guess, in a previous career choice. And, um, and somehow I think that meant that I couldn't 
interview players or that I didn't know sports or couldn't tell the difference between man on man versus zone. Like, I don't know what a picture had to do with my ability as a sports reporter, but the entire article was about that. So that's just one example of the many, many um, ways that I got eviscerated by the sports media. But yeah. like I said, the, the viewers were great. I mean, I was getting bombarded everywhere I went. It was just people were lovely taking pictures. Can I have a hug? We love you. But it was really the media that was brutal. You know, I don't know who's worse. And you could speak to it because you've been on in different facets of media. There is no bigger pack of self-important, self-congratulatory, overinflated egos than sports media members. Like we're all. Yeah, they, they, re they report on a player's pulled groin. Yeah. It's called the toy department of the news. <laughs> right. Well, who's I mean, like, it, it's you, fun. That should right. be fun. I mean, we love sports. Yep. Sports should be fun. Sports oh. is fun. Um, so but sports, sports also is. Yeah. <laughs> we are. No, uh, we're Trekkies without ears. We will wear jerseys that say 14 and Johnson on it or something like that. But we're all pack of Trekkies who weren't good enough to actually play in the game. All of us. Myself included. Me too. Yes. I mean, we, we love sports. I mean, yep. the reason I got into sports, the reason you got into sports is we were sports fans. Right. And we loved watching sports. And it was a way for me, I, I write about this in the book, it was a way for me to get a free ticket to every game, be in the press <laughs> box, eat free Dodger dogs during the seventh inning. And it was fun. I loved covering sports until, uh, until it got really personal and until the rest of the media decided that it was time to... Um, to really focus on my cleavage or my lipstick or my fingernail oh, color. It became entirely about your it appearance. It was weird. It was totally weird. And then, oh, and going back to that article by um, Larry Stewart, they never once mentioned any of my work. Like there was not one comment about my actual job, like how I did at work, how I was reporting. And I had just gotten some of the biggest gets of my career. I just sat down with Barry Bonds for two sit-down interviews that made national news. I remember, I remember um, it. And, you know, I was the first person, male or female, to ask Barry Bonds on camera if he was taking steroids. I mean, again, these were hard. I was, sat down with Shaq, <clears throat> excuse me, Shaq, when he had his media boycott. I was talking to, you know, tough, tough, tough athletes at the time, week after week, Alex Rodriguez, Mia Hamm, Nomar Garcia Parra, Randy Johnson, um, you know, just on and on and on with the big superstar athletes and asking every single one of them very tough questions. That was never mentioned in any of the criticism about me, but they mentioned my bra size. So, so your you boobs, go. your bra size and your shirt, that was the entire column. That was it. That was it. So years ago, you and I were talking one time and I'm paraphrasing this conversation, and, and you might remember it, but it was, you acknowledged, you thought, you know, your ticket into sports broadcasting was your appearance. Again, I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I'm wrong. And you said it was a deal with the devil because it might have helped you get in the door. But then, like you mentioned, that column by Larry Stewart, and he's not the only one. There, were, Everybody else out there, you got murdered for it decades later, Lisa, was it worth it? Oh my God. Yes. I mean, had oh, I not have, have, 
Had I not gone through that, again, read the book, because the book talks about the trajectory of, of my career. Had I not been a sports reporter, um, first of all, I don't think I would have built the, I used to say I was a size two, now I'm a size six, because I had to build a thick skin. Had I not <laughs> gone through that, I would not have been as courageous, and uh, nothing scares me now. Zero. I can ask anything. No, there is not one single instance that I'm scared of. I will walk, I will stop a bullet. If I see somebody pull a gun, I, I would jump in front of it. I, I wasn't like that before I covered sports. Going through sports made me a tough person. It really made me brave. It made me more courageous because I had to be. When you're the only woman walking into a locker room where some member of the media is going to grab your ass, a player is going to demean you, um, the, the, a team owner is going to ask you out in the hallway. Um, then you, when you get back to the station, the station executive is going to hit on you. And then when you go on TV, the viewers are going to uh, judge your looks just as much as they judge what you're saying. You know, that makes you tough. That makes you, uh, you know, prepared for battle in a very different way than my male colleagues who didn't have to endure a lot of that. They would go out and cover the game, file their report, you know, do their stand-up and leave and go home. I had to be escorted out of the stadiums because I had death threats and rape threats, you know, either stalker fans or stalker, you know, TV executives would be following me out to my car. So those are things that men never had to think about or worry about. And so, um, I just had a different experience. Now, had I not gone through that, I wouldn't be here today doing what I'm doing now, which is, you know, 600 inside edition investigations later, I've helped change um, laws. I've helped change company policy for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, we've ha- helped shed light on um, sexual assaults, murders, cold cases. There's now somebody serving 80 years to life in prison for killing a baby because I did an investigation on him and I wouldn't have done that had I not done sports first and then got my break on inside edition because of that. You know, for women who did what you did and were sort of the first in the door when it comes to sports broadcasting, I'm thinking Phyllis George, Gail Gardner, uh, there were some others, but you were one of the first as well. Considering when you do watch a game now, we see women play-by-play announcers for major league baseball teams. Um, It does seem to me it's different, but in many ways it does seem to me, I hear it's kind of the same. What do you think about how, what do you think about that? I know it's the same for many women because I just spoke to somebody who is um, a superstar female, excuse me, a superstar female sports reporter And um, she just told me what she was enduring. And I was like, what? 30 years later, 20 20 years after, this is exactly 20 years um, after I was fired from Monday Night Football and kind of went through everything I went through with, with ABC. The thought that a tremendously gifted woman is still going through a lot of this is heartbreaking to me. And that's why I wrote the book. The book is a love letter to younger women getting into the business um, and a cautionary tale. 
I want them to know what red flags to look for. I want them to not make the mistakes I made. You know, a lot of people write memoirs and they say, look at my fabulous life. I have no regrets. I have so many regrets. I write about my regrets and my mistakes in the book in the hopes that other people don't make those same mistakes. You know, when we talked and I, I'm, I know you mentioned it, uh, you didn't have children. And I know a lot of women who pursue the path of a career and a life without children, they'll admit to feeling some judgment from other women, from, from whomever in their circle of friends. I'm sure you went through that. Do you still, do you feel any more of that at all? Or did you ever? No, you know, I, I made that decision early on that I didn't want kids. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think I would have been able to have kids and have the career. You know, I'm on the road over 100 days a year right now as an investigative reporter. But when I covered sports, I was on the road just as much. So for basically 30 years, I have spent about a third of my life on the road. So it wouldn't have been fair to have a child. I, I wouldn't have chosen to have somebody else raise my child if oh. I chose to have a child. Um, I don't think that's fair. My dad was a stay-at-home dad after my mom died because he wanted to make sure that we had a parent at home. Um, so I, I knew that my career choice was going to mean I was going to be traveling. So I didn't think it would be fair to have a child. That's number one. Number two, later when I fell in love and got married, you know, at the time I was actually engaged to my ex-husband, Scott Erickson, when I found out I was pregnant. <clears throat> and then for, for a minute, I thought maybe I do want to have a child because I'm in love. I'm older. Um, at the time I was 39. So I knew that was probably my last opportunity yeah. to get pregnant. And then as luck would have it, I ended up having a miscarriage. And that was on the sidelines of Monday night football during that window of time when I was really being criticized. I had a very cruel, uh, verbally abusive boss. Um, I was very depressed. I, I was full of anxiety every day coming to work. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was throwing up before and after every game or every interaction with my boss. And I don't think physically I was able to hold on to that pregnancy because of that. So um, that was the only time I kind of thought, well, maybe I, I do want to have a baby because I was in love. Um, and now, you know, I'm 58. I don't have kids. So I don't have a regret about that. But one of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to leave a legacy to young people, not just young women, but young people. I don't have kids of my, my own, but I want other people's kids to see what I went through so that they can make some informed choices about what they can do if they see the same red flags. Lisa, I noticed as I've gotten older and maybe you've gone through this, you will you will hear people say, and I say it too, oh, I don't care what they think. I don't care what everybody else thinks. And what I've learned is that most of those people are lying that they do care, but then you really reach a point where you actually mean it. And it's kind of yeah. empowering. Yeah. It sounds to me like you don't care. When did you come to a point where you were so comfortable in your own skin? You're like, here it is. Do with it, whatever you want. If you like it, great. If you don't, great. I really don't care. Was that recent 10 years ago? Where were you on that? So in my book, there's a chapter called the big F you. And <laughs> It is literally that point in my career where I realized sports has taken everything from me, including my pregnancy. It almost took my life because I wanted to kill myself after Monday Night Football. 
and I was depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I didn't know how to rebrand myself, how to rebuild a career that was such an utter and complete failure after Monday night football. Did you feel like a failure? Did you, Lisa, did you, did you feel like a failure? Yeah, of course. Yes. I mean, I failed. I got fired by Monday night football. That, that was a, a, a big, um, a big black mark on my resume. However, I decided that I wasn't going to have Monday night football be the last line on my resume. I knew that if I kept working and kept trying and kept building my career and refocusing, that there would be other lines on my resume and that Monday night football would get pushed further and further and further down and further and further and further in the rear view mirror. And you guys, that's exactly what happened. I hope anybody that's listening to this understands that I don't care if it's a divorce, which I've been through, career failure, which I've been through, loss of a parent, which I've been through, you know, uh, losing all your money, all your home, everything. I lost my home. I lost all my money. I've lost everything. And I've rebuilt it. And I thought I thought I was going to kill myself. And then at some point I thought, you know what? F them. I'm not. This is not the end of Lisa Guerrero. This is not the end of me. I get to write my own memoir. I get to write my life story. I'm going to decide how the story ends, not them. And once I realized that, it freed me from caring about what they or anybody else thinks of me. And you're right. Most people that say that don't mean it. I actually mean it now. (laughs) Again, I'm 58. Um, So I, you know, about um, 17 years ago, that's when I, that's when I made that, that hard right turn. And, and then I became really free to express myself how I want to express my, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter Oh my God. Um, you know that <laughs> yeah, I, know. I will say what I feel. No. <laughs> Believe me, I've been in trouble for my Twitter feed <laughs> many times. Yeah, that, your I Twitter feed's I mean pretty now. candid. I don't care. <laughs> right. Um, Lisa, I got yeah. a couple more minutes. Guess uh, what? I, I, don't, I, I don't care. I got a couple more more I got a couple more minutes here to let you go. Um you've seen how since you started here, let's say, let's say nineteen ninety-ish when you were doing sports broadcasting and cable TV started to take off and you're on a television show that integrated sports and entertainment that we really hadn't seen before. Now we see it everywhere. And then society kind of goes through some other things. We have me too movement awareness, everything else. Is it better now? Or do you see, nah, man, it's still the dams. It's still the same thing. I think the thing that's better is that people are talking about, um, you know, mental health and sports, misogyny, sexual harassment, you know, um, sexual abuse, domestic abuse. I think we're now able to talk about what has happened to us. And there's a more of a willingness to believe women when they tell their stories. I'm on another show. I host um, Secrets of Playboy on A&E. We're going into our second season. Um, in fact, I'm getting ready to shoot the second season in two weeks. So, um, you know, a lot of women have come forward from decades ago saying this happened to me it hurt me it changed my life um it it took away my innocence or my childhood or my my young womanhood and i want to tell other people now about it so i think the difference is uh, that people are talking about it. yes wrongdoing still happens but i think now that people are talking about it the wrongdoers have to think twice about whether or not they will get caught 
or they will be found out. Because now if you commit sexual assault, there is a possibility that that woman isn't going to cover it up anymore and that she's not going to be afraid to go to the police or report it um, or go to HR. Now a lot more people are reporting, a lot more people are suing, a lot more people are using their platform to talk about things. So in that way, I think it has gotten better and that will cause people to think twice about hurting others. Lisa, when I look at your resume, it's funny you should say, well, I failed. And I I don't see that because I just see something that it ended. But I, I know that's semantics and that's sort of a personal definition. And I I, as I told you years ago, it, the career kind of amazes me in some ways because you just kept adding things to it, whether it was, and even if it didn't work, you took another right turn or knocked on another door, you created another door to knock on. You just kept going and going. And now you've written a book, which you should have written. It shouldn't have been anybody else, whether it's me or anybody else. I still have those three chapters that you sent me on my hard drive, if you want them, by the way. And I thought she should write it. And I'm really glad you did. You've done all these different things. You're 58. Doesn't look like to me you have any ambition of slowing down. What else? Do you, what else do you want to add to your resume before you decide? Okay, I think I'm done. I'll take a walk on the beach with my dog. Yeah, I need to um, produce other projects. I want to get my book um, developed into a scripted series. Mm-hmm. I think it would um, be really fun to to see a young actress playing me and going through a lot of the things in the eighties and nineties I went through and for a new generation and and a new kind of audience of people to see some of that would be fun. Um, I also want to be able to uh, develop projects for um, women, uh, people of color, Latinos uh, to get their scripts or um, their stories uh, out there so that people can read or watch um, stories from other parts of the community rather than just, you know, the the typical white male um, right. center of the universe that most writers in Hollywood are. And there's just a lot of voices out here. And most of us just need an opportunity to have a platform to tell our stories. So that's what I want to do. I'm going to start my own production company. And uh, in fact, I'm working on that right now. So I think there's, there's some big news to come in the next couple months. Congratulations. I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Congratulations on your book and all of of your success. And I wish you and your family continued good health. Thank you very much for this, Lisa. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Mac. It's so good to see you too. And thank you for asking me and thank you for having this conversation. I think it's an important one, especially for sports fans, which I am a sports fan. I think it's, it's time for all of us to start having these conversations. They're important. I agree. But there's one, there's one thing I have to, I know you're a Rams fan. And your Rams beat my Bengals in the Super Bowl a couple years ago. So I'm not quite over that. So other than that, I think we're on the same page. Well, we sucked last year, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you got the ring. So enjoy that. At least <laughs> I really do. appreciate it. Thanks a lot. <laughs>